Amen. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, would you open up our eyes to see the beauty of Christ? Would you show us Christ in its pages? Would you impress yourself upon our souls that we may um, know you more as a result of our time together? God, that we may look more like Jesus as a result of our time together. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may be who you've called us to be and do all that you have called and are calling us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a man by the name Bob Goff, and he was married to a woman named Maria. They had a few kids a few years back on New Year's Day. They were sitting around the table, and the kids started to explain, uh, complain about how bored they were. And there was nothing for them to do, so they began to complain about boredom. And, and so Bob asked his kids, okay, well, let's brainstorm some ideas. How can we make this day more interesting? And they kicked around some ideas. One idea that surfaced was the idea to throw a parade for the neighborhood. And of all the ideas, that's the one that kind of gained the most traction at the table. And so they began to dream what it would look like for them to throw their own parade. And so the kids said, we can make our own costumes. We can give balloons. And we can parade through our street, the streets of our neighborhood. And we can tell our friends and neighbors to come out. And they can watch the parade. And, and it would be, it'll be a great time. Well, Bob stepped back, and he began to think about kind of what makes parades so fun. And he said, you know, kids, what, what makes the, the best about a, part about a parade isn't so much the observing of it, it's the walking in it. So he said, what if we made it a rule that no one of our, none of our neighbors and none of our friends could come out and just watch the parade? What if we said everyone who stepped outside of their doors, they, they were invited to join us in the parade themselves. And the kids got really excited about that idea. And they said, yes, let's do that. And so they left and began to spread the word throughout the neighborhood, telling their friends and their neighbors all that was about to go down, saying, hey, we're going to have a parade, but there's one rule. You can't watch it. Uh, the only rule is you've got to walk in it. We want everybody to participate in this moment. And the neighborhood got excited and people began to make costumes and grab balloons. And after, after some time, the kids and Bob and Maria uh, started out at their house and they uh, began to walk down their streets. And as they were walking down the streets, friends and neighbors would come out dressed in their costumes with their balloons, and they would join Bob and Maria. And before long, a large group from their neighborhood was just parading through the streets, and they were making a big loop all the way back because Maria said, and, and if we do a parade, at the end of it, we'll just throw a barbecue at our house. And everybody who participates in that parade, they can come back, and we'll just eat together, and we'll just throw a party. It'll be great. And that's exactly what they did. They hosted a parade in their neighborhood that no one could just watch. They hosted a parade in their neighborhood that everyone had to walk in. Well, when you think about what it means to be a Christian, when you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, when you think about the movement of the gospel that is taking place in the world right now as God advances his kingdom and as God, the gospel is spreading amongst people groups all over the world, when Jesus invites us into relationship with himself and he calls us into his kingdom, essentially he's saying, look, I want you to step into my parade, the parade of my kingdom that is walking throughout the world. And I want you to know that this kingdom isn't, this kingdom activity, this mission and movement of God isn't something you are to stand on the sidelines and observe. But if you are a follower of Jesus, trusting in the gospel, you are to step out of the step off of the sidelines and onto the streets and join the parade yourself. And as you journey with Jesus together, you're just inviting more and more people in on that moment as the gospel moves and spreads throughout the world. And you know that the mission of God is going to come to an end. And when it ends, a feast will begin. 
And all those who are participating in the parade of God's kingdom, sweeping the world, they are going to step into a a moment where they feast with Jesus and they enjoy one another forever and always. That's the story of the Christian life. That's the story of the kingdom of God in this world. And in many ways, that's the story of the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins with Jesus hanging out with his disciples, and he looks at them and says, hey, guys, I'm about to leave, but don't sweat it. When I leave, I'm going to send a helper to you. I'm going to send you my spirit, and then you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as you are bearing witness to me, more and more people are going to be added to your number. More and more people are going to be transformed by my gospel and And as you are moving in that direction, you're being a part of this this parade that is the kingdom of God, this parade that is the movement of the gospel. And so the disciples did just that. They waited upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave his spirit to them, and they started bearing witness. And the story of Acts takes us all the way to Acts chapter 8, where we've seen up to this point, Large crowds of people getting in on this parade, so to speak, getting in on what Jesus is doing in the world. But what we haven't seen up to this point is a lot of kind of zeroed in emphasis and focus on singular people and singular people's stories as they hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. But here in Acts chapter 8, we're about to be cued into the first of several that will come back to back to back of, of individuals who are being swept up in the movement of the gospel. These individuals that are being invited into the parade of God's kingdom. And they are being invited by disciples themselves who are already a part of it. And so here in Acts chapter 8 verse 26, we pick up with a man named Philip. And Philip is one who's going to be used by Jesus to engage an individual and invite this individual into relationship with Jesus. And then this individual would begin serving Jesus and jumping in on the movement and the mission of God that's taking place all throughout the world. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, it says, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Now, we're reading this passage right in the middle of Advent season. And we've talked about Advent every Sunday over the past several weeks, and we will continue to do so over the next couple of weeks, leading on up to our Christmas celebration. And you know that the word Advent means coming. And during this time, we do pause and we take moments to reflect upon uh, the first coming of Christ, and we think about all that he lived for, all that he died for, all that he rose from the grave for. But we don't just look back over the course of this season. We look into the future. We look forward to the moment when Christ returns and the parade comes to an end and we feast with Jesus forever and always. But there's a sense in which as we step into, as we continue observing Advent this, this season is that we don't just look to the past and we don't just look to the future. Advent has a whole lot to say about the present. Because there's a real sense in which the Christ who came And the Christ who one day will come again, that Christ is still coming. He's still coming through his people who are walking in step with his spirit and sharing his story with those 
around them. So that he's coming more and more in these present moments, stepping in the lives of men and women who do not yet know him. They don't know his love. They don't know his salvation. They don't know his story. Men and women who are stepping, who are still kind of living on the sidelines, wondering, is there anything more to this thing called life? Is there anything more to what I am doing with, my t- with the time and the space that I occupy in this world? Is there anything more to all of this? And you and I, who know the story of Jesus, who are believing in the gospel, we have an opportunity to live by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might bear witness to the beauty of Jesus and see others stepping into this parade with us. And you find this happening here. You find it happening with a guy named Philip. Now, I love Philip because Philip was a guy, he was not an apostle. He wasn't a professional minister. He wasn't necessarily a formally trained missionary. This was an ordinary guy who loved Jesus and loved people. An ordinary guy who wanted to share the gospel explicitly and emphatically everywhere he went. This is what he's been doing in Samaria up to this point. He's been telling the story of Jesus. He's been inviting more people into it. And you know from last week's passage that that a revival began to break out in that city. And many people were coming to trust in the gospel. And you look at verse 8 of chapter 8 and it says there was great joy in that city. Samaria was a great place to be at that point in time. But then when you turn to verse 26, an angel of the Lord shows up and tells Philip to do something that might have caught him off guard. This supernatural guidance was provided him saying, Philip, I want you to get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, there's a parenthesis in your Bibles where Luke just provides this commentary about where he wanted, where the angel wanted Philip to go. He says this space between Jerusalem and Gaza, it's a desert road. It's a dry place. It's not a crowded place. It's, a, it's an empty place. It's not like Samaria where you are currently enjoying ministry and you are enjoying life and you are seeing Jesus do incredible things. This angel of the Lord stepped into Philip's life and said, look, God wants you to go somewhere else. And he received this word of guidance from an angel. Now, an angel of the Lord, I know that can kind of knock us off balance a little bit. We know from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that angels are ministering spirits. They, they minister to those who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Angels are dispatched and deployed by God to help us and to serve us and to direct us in different ways. They're messengers, literally translating the word angel. And when you get to the end of Hebrews, we're told that it's possible for a person to have interaction with an angel and never know it. But it seems here that Philip is interacting with an angel and Luke is aware of what's happening. This messenger of the Lord has come to bring this direction to him, telling him to leave Samaria and go to a specific place. This supernatural guidance that comes to him in this moment of of spiritual life or spiritual engagement. Now, I know sometimes we can get a little... Suspicious when people start talking about hearing from Jesus or being told by the Spirit to do something or to say something. We can get a little critical. We can become a little cynical about that. But I want to encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus and, you are, and if you are filled with the Holy Spirit and if you believe the Bible that you're reading, you have to, in the very least, be open to God providing guidance in these types of ways. That the moment you step off of the sideline, you get out onto the street of God's activity and you surrender yourself to the mission of God in your life. And you say, I don't want to be an observer of all that God is doing. I want to be a part of all that God is doing. The moment you make that shift and that move in your heart, in your mind, you can and you should expect the Spirit of the Lord 
the presence of God to guide you in various ways in varying degrees. There's a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones who uh, pastored a church in London, England. He's one of my heroes in the faith. And he uh, pastored for a long time, died in the 1960s. And he was a man who loved the Bible. He trusted in the Bible. He believed the Bible was enough for the Christian, that the Bible was our authority. And, but he also believed in the vitality of the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the things he commented on as, he rela- as, as relates to this passage. I want to share his words with you because I find them instructive and I find them helpful that you can love the Bible and still be led by the Holy Spirit. So this is what he says. Martin Lloyd-Jones, here again is a most extraordinary subject and indeed a very fascinating one. And from many angles, a most glorious one. There is no question that, but that God's people can look for and expect leadings, guidance, indications of what they are meant to do. There are many examples of this in the scriptures. Philip the evangelist was told by the angel of the Lord, arise and go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza which is the desert. Now, there are leadings such as that. If you read the history of the church, God's people throughout the centuries, and especially the history of revivals, you will find that this is something which is perfectly clear and definite. People have been told by the Holy Spirit to do something. They knew it was the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and it transpired that it obviously was his leading. It seems clear to me that if we deny such a possibility, we are again guilty of quenching the Spirit. So my question to you as we just kind of step into this passage is, are you open to the Lord's guidance? Are you open to God leading, guiding, and directing the paths that you take in this world? Are you open to the Spirit's leading? Are you open to the Spirit's promptings? Are you sinking into the community of such that could help you affirm and discern the Spirit's leading and the Spirit's prompting of your life as you come to this moment and you say, look, I don't want to just stand on the sidelines. I want to get out onto the street and be a part of what God and Jesus is doing in the world. Are you open to supernatural guidance? You know, using that phrase can be a little bit tricky because anytime God is involved, it is always supernatural. Anytime God is leading, guiding, and directing his people for the advancement of his kingdom, that is always a supernatural act. Sometimes that supernatural act expresses itself with an angel of the Lord appearing to a disciple like Philip and saying, hey, I want you to go here specifically. Sometimes it manifests itself like when the Holy Spirit tells Philip to get into the chariot to hang out with this man he's going to meet on the road. Sometimes it takes that form and it expresses itself in that way. Other times, God's supernatural act of leading and guiding and directing his people takes more subtle forms of just divine providence. Those subtle forms where you recognize that you are in a coffee shop with an opportunity to talk to somebody about the Jesus, about the Savior, or you find yourself at a workplace surrounded by people who need to see and observe the credibility of the Christian faith working itself out in the life of a disciple of Jesus. And There are all types of ways that God leads, guides, and directs his people, and and you and I should be open to all of it. We should be open to every means that God uses to communicate his will and to guide and to lead his people in this world. But not only do we need to be open to the various means, whether it comes to expressing through supernatural moments like what's happening here or subtle forms of providence, which seems to be more ordinary in our lives, We also need to be open to where the Lord may lead us. And so you need to ask yourself, do you really want to be led by the Holy Spirit? Do you really want to be led by the Holy Spirit? Because it is possible that the Holy Spirit will lead you to a place you do not naturally want to go. 
It is possible that the Holy Spirit may lead you not in an upward direction as you journey through this world. It is possible that the Holy Spirit may lead you in a direction that looks like it's moving downward or backwards. I mean, just think about Philip. He's about to leave Samaria, a place where revival is breaking out, and there's great joy in that city, and that's the better place to be. But the Spirit is now speaking. God is now speaking to him, saying, I want you to go to the desert place, not necessarily the the better place. And so if you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, you need to be open to go wherever and whenever he's wanting you to go. And sometimes he may move you towards the desert place, and in your minds you think this is a, this is a, you know for a fact that this isn't the better place to be, but God in his providence is arranging something that will be ultimately better for a larger number of people than you currently realize. And so the supernatural guidance is coming to Philip and And he's being called to leave Samaria, a place of great joy, and to go to a desert road. And there on that desert road, he's going to meet an Ethiopian man. He's going to have one conversation with one person. And the way and his willingness to kind of move in this direction, it really kind of echoes and embodies what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 15. Keep in mind, the book of Acts And the Gospel of Luke are two volumes written by the same author, Luke's volume 1, Acts is volume 2. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus teaches about God's heart for the one. He teaches about what Jesus is willing to do to go after a lost sheep of his. Check it out, Luke chapter 15, verse 4. Luke 15, verse 4. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? There are 99 people in Samaria, but there is a lost sheep on the desert road, and that's where the Holy Spirit is going to lead Philip because the Holy Spirit always leads to needs. The Holy Spirit always leads to needs, and there is a man in need on the desert road. And God is dispatching his disciple, Philip, in this man's direction to love him, to serve him with the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of divine guidance and of divine intervention as the Holy Spirit is leading us to the needs around us, and we want to be open to that. Now, you meet the Ethiopian man. There's a couple of things we learn about him right off the bat. He's referred to as an Ethiopian man, so he's not a Jewish man. He's a black man from the region of Ethiopia, south of where Jerusalem and Israel and all of that was, and and we're told that he was a eunuch. Now, you may know what a eunuch is. If you don't know what a eunuch is, just suffice it to say that he was cut out to be a bachelor for the rest of his life. Let that kind of hang out there till you get it. I like that one. He was cut out to be a bachelor for the rest of his life. And so that was being a eunuch. He was castrated. Now, he was not only a eunuch, he was also a man who was highly educated and held a prominent position amongst his people. We are told he's basically the minister of finance for the queen of the Ethiopians. He was in charge of her entire treasury. Now think about this. He could have been a eunuch by birth. He could have been born with a physical blemish that that is why he is described in this way at this point in time. But what is also possible, and I would even argue more likely, is that this man became a eunuch voluntarily. It was not uncommon in antiquity for someone to volunteer to become a eunuch so that you might serve in the presence of royalty. 
And if he was going to be in proximity of the queen, he needed to be in her presence in a more of an objective sense. And so it was very common for eunuchs to serve royalty, for eunuchs to hold these positions of responsibility and accountability in kingdoms such as that because, of, because, of, because they volunteered to do so. So it's possible this was a physical blemish he had from birth. It is likely, and I would argue more likely, that he volunteered to become a eunuch at some point in time in his journey. And so I want you to think about this eunuch. I want you to think about his story. What this means is, is that this man had a great job. He was highly educated. He was wealthy. He was comfortable in the palace of the queen. But how did he get there? In order to get there, he had to sacrifice much. And at this point in time, he begins to look a lot like the people we're surrounded by in our city. There are many people in Seattle who have sacrificed much for the sake of success. There are many people in our city who have sacrificed much in the service of their own ambitions. This eunuch sacrificed much to be in the service of the queen. And now that he's there, it seems that it might not be all that it's cracked up to be. This is why he's still searching. He's in the presence of royalty. He's living in the highest of heights in this world, but yet there's still something drawing him towards Jerusalem. There's still something in his heart that he wants to go after because he's not quite arrived at what he has where he is. So he says, look, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to worship. That's why he was there in the first place. It seems that he was a thirsty soul going to Jerusalem to find something to drink. So that little parenthetical expression that this is a desert road, why would Luke drop that in there? He drops that in there, yes, to let us know that this is kind of the the atmosphere of where he's going, but I think there's also illustrative. Serves as a little illustration of of the state of the Ethiopian eunuch's soul at this point in time. He's living a desert life, and he's searching for something to nourish him, to satisfy him, something that he has not yet found in his service in the queen of the Ethiopians. And so he moves in this direction. He's, he's gone to Jerusalem. He's went there, but something happened because it doesn't seem that his experience with the Lord at the temple has gone all that well. So he's left Jerusalem, and he's reading the book of Isaiah, as we'll see in a moment, and, and he's not understanding it. So there seems to be a disconnect in his experience and a disconnect in his soul. Let's pick it up in verse 29. So the Holy Spirit leads to needs, leading Philip to meet this Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official in in service of the queen of the Ethiopians. Then you pick up in verse 29, it says, The Spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When the Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. And this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 53, a prophetic passage in the Old Testament that speaks about what Jesus would do for his people. And listen to what it says. It says, he, would, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer. So he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. 
You see, the spirit of Advent leads us to the needs around us. And when we get there and we find those in need, as we meet those needs, we're making much of Jesus. We make much of Jesus in the things that we speak. We make much of Jesus in the things that we do in the service of those in need around us. This is what's going down here, but look at it more closely. I love how Philip begins the conversation. He walks up, he steps into the chariot, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? I love that Philip didn't just step into that moment and start dropping declarations. He didn't step into that moment and immediately say, Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah. He began the conversation by asking a question. Asking questions is a great way to start gospel conversations. When you step into these moments and you find people who are struggling or hurting or they're in need and you start asking them questions, that invites them in, that endows them with a sense of dignity. That they're a part of a conversation. They're, they're being talked with, not talked at. And so this man, Philip, sits down and asks a question, which is a great way to start gospel conversations. We want to learn to ask questions of those that we are ministering to. We want to endow them with dignity and invite them into a dialogue. And this is what's happening here. And to the eunuch's credit, although he was highly educated by virtue of the fact that he could read, not many people could read back in the day. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, so he is highly educated. He is very wealthy. He has a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, which was a bizarre thing to have unless you were a person of means and a person of wealth. And this is his story. So he's highly educated. He's highly wealthy. But you see in him a humility, a humility that says, you know, I'm reading this, but I don't understand it. Philip asks, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless somebody helps me? There's humility there. Maybe he's come to the point in his life where he's just been, um, where he's so desperate that he's too desperate to be proud in this moment. He's too desperate to pretend that he really knows what this passage is about. No, in humility, he says, I need help to understand it. And the spirit who is in Philip, working through Philip in this moment, is about to grant him a profound understanding of the passage that he's reading. Because he was reading Isaiah chapter 53, and again, that's verses 7 and 8. That's the quotation of verses 7 and 8 of that, of that passage. Now, he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Now, this means that in order to read Isaiah, you didn't really just read one passage. It's not like just pulling up a couple of verses on your phone and it's isolated from everything else that's around it. No, when you're reading a scroll back in the day, you had the whole book opened before you. So there were lots of passages. No doubt all of Isaiah 53 is, has been, is before him and perhaps other chapters of Isaiah are spread within his purview as he's reading Isaiah and he's interacting with the scriptures. Now think about this. This eunuch has just traveled thousands of miles to worship the God of Israel in the temple. Now he's returning home and he's reading the scriptures that should have been read in the temple, that he should have been taught in the temple, and yet he still doesn't understand them because something happened in his experience at the temple that apparently wasn't very fruitful. So he traveled 1,600 miles all the way to Jerusalem only to turn around and to return home and is still in a state of confusion, probably still in a state of desperation. Now, there is a historical note that you need to be made aware of. Archaeologists have found this. It's been verified by many sources. But entering the temple in the first century, at the time in which this Ethiopian eunuch would have arrived there, as he would have approached the temple in hopes of, of meeting with the God of Israel amongst the people of God, as he's walking up the temple, he would have noticed a sign that was posted 
as people are coming in. And there was one sign in particular that would have really struck him hard. It was a sign that read this. A sign that said, no lame, no blind, and no eunuchs may enter. No lame, no blind, and no eunuchs may enter. So this guy has traveled several thousand miles to worship the God of Israel, and yet he can't get in as close as he wants to get. There's a sense in which he's been denied. There's a sense in which he has been rejected. There's a sense in which he's been humiliated. So as he's returning back to Africa, maybe he's thinking about, man, I made a terrible decision to castrate myself. That decision I made years ago has cut me off from the God of Israel. I couldn't even get into the temple. There's a sense in which he's wallowing in his shame and his regret. His humiliation is before him, and yet he's reading verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah. And Philip comes along and says, hey, do you know who this is about? And he says, no, can you tell me? And then Philip sits down with him and begins to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. He didn't stop there. He shared the gospel from the book of Isaiah. What is it do you think he shared with Philip? What do you think he said? Well, I think on one hand, he may have looked at this Ethiopian and said, hey, I want you to know that that this passage is about the Messiah. It's about the Savior. His name is Jesus. And Jesus has this uncanny ability to sympathize with his people. Maybe he said, hey, that, that humiliation you're feeling right now, understand that Jesus experienced the exact same thing. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. He came into the world to love and to serve people who only rejected him and eventually crucified him. He came into the world to be treated like a criminal and to be placed upon a cross, dying a death that was considered cursed by all, the most shameful way to die. Perhaps Phillips encouraged him by saying, hey, look, the Messiah, the Savior, whose name is Jesus, he understands what you're feeling right now. Because in his humiliation, justice was denied him too. And so maybe he encouraged the Ethiopian of knowing that Jesus is a sympathetic savior. He sympathizes with people in their fallen condition. He sympathizes with people in their brokenness. He sympathizes with people in their experience of shame. But he didn't just stop there because he shared the gospel. And it's not enough to just tell people that Jesus sympathizes with people. So he didn't just say, we we can be sure of this, he didn't just say that Jesus sympathizes with us. He probably looked at the Ethiopian and said, hey, I want you to know that this Jesus, this Savior, this Messiah, he actually took your place. He substituted himself for you. And maybe he told him to look back up to verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah chapter 53, and maybe together they read these words. Verses 4 through 6, rather, Isaiah 53, yet he himself bore our sicknesses. There's that sympathy again. And he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him, that is Jesus, for the iniquity of us all. So he might started saying, hey, look, Jesus knows what you're going through. He sympathizes with you. But then he went further, no doubt, and said, hey, I want you to know that Jesus substituted himself for you, that he took your place on the cross, and he's willing to bring you into the kingdom of God. 
But then maybe they kept reading through the book of Isaiah and eventually they kind of looked to the right on the scroll a little bit and their eyes fell on Isaiah chapter 56. And, and maybe Philip told him, and this Jesus is ready to give you a name that cannot be a name that is greater than the name you've been searching for in this world. And maybe he dropped him in Isaiah 56 verse 3 and said, No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and holds firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Maybe he's saying, look, you've been trying to make a name for yourself in the service of the queen of your people. But Jesus lived, died, and he rose again to give you a much better name than you could ever acquire for yourself. A name that will have no hint of shame attached to it. A name that will never be humiliated. A name that will never be rejected. A name that will never be denied. A name that will last forever. And he's walking him through the story of the gospel as the Spirit is working in Philip. Philip is making much of Jesus, saying, look, Jesus sympathizes with you. Jesus died for you. Jesus gives you a new name and a new identity that you can rest in. All the sacrifices you've made in this life to make a name for yourself, look, Jesus sacrificed himself to give you a much better name. A new identity, a new purpose, a new passion. And this is where things begin to click within his soul as his life begins to change. You look at verse 36. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop and both Philip and the eunuch went down under the water and he baptized him. When they came up and out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. So they come across some water, and the eunuch asks, so what's going to keep me from being baptized? Why baptism? Well, on one hand, it's because part of what Philip just communicated was that Jesus identifies with the eunuch in his condition. That Jesus identifies with him in his humiliation. And then he went on to talk about his crucifixion and his resurrection. And now he's coming to faith in Jesus. And he's saying, so the, the Jesus wants, wants to identify with me. I want to identify with him. So he says, let's get baptized. That's what baptism is. Baptism happens when a person decides to identify with Christ who recognizes that Jesus came to them and that Jesus wants them and that Jesus saves them. And they say, yes, I want to be in on Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I want to make it known that I'm with Jesus. And so we get baptized as a way of illustrating that and demonstrating that desire. This is why baptism is a part of every Christian story. If you are a disciple of Jesus, baptism should be a part of your story. And it shouldn't be something that is delayed in your journey. It's something that should be pursued by you as you say, look, I understand what Jesus has done for me. Now I want to identify myself with him. So this is what the eunuch does. Hey, there's water. Let's do it now. And Philip was happy to oblige. And they stepped down and they baptized this eunuch. And this eunuch identified with Christ, gave his life to Jesus, demonstrated that, illustrated that through baptism. And then he came up out of the water and the two guys parted ways. 
And the eunuch, I mean, Phil, yeah, the eunuch went away rejoicing. He was celebrating. He was, he was joyful. Think about his experience. He went to Jerusalem to meet with God in the temple only to be denied. That tends to be what religion does to people who are fraught with shame and who are fraught with guilt and who are fraught with fear. A person may go to religion in order to meet with God, but only to find themselves rejected and turned away. But that's not what the gospel does, is it? Philip stepped into that chariot and said, hey, you went to the temple in search of God, but I want you to know the true temple has now come to you, and his name is Jesus. And everything you were searching for, there you can have here. And the Ethiopian eunuch was all about it. So he begins to worship. He begins to rejoice. He begins to celebrate this work of grace in his life. There's a church father by the name of Irenaeus who, who has written a lot about, who wrote a lot about church history during his day because it was real fresh for him. And, and he points out to us that this Ethiopian eunuch was responsible for the gospel reaching that portion of the world that this eunuch returned to Ethiopia and began to tell the story of Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. And right now, there are lots of Christians in Ethiopia. There are lots of churches amongst that people group right now, and it traces that trace their origin all the way back to what happened here in Acts chapter 8. Now, we're told here that Philip and the Ethiopian, they parted ways, and they didn't see each other any longer. At least they didn't see each other any longer in this life. Our friend Jeff, who was pastoring, who's pastoring our North Expression, he just returned from a couple of weeks of serving Jesus in Sierra Leone, and he was traveling with missionaries, visiting villages, sharing the gospel, and loving and serving people. And as he and this missionary friend were approaching a new village, they had been to several villages before, but at this one particular village, the Spirit prompted the missionary to share the gospel and to give an explicit invitation for people to believe in Jesus. And so he stood up and he preached a sermon, and under the Spirit's prompting and power, he said, hey, who here would like to put their faith in Jesus and be baptized and identify with him? And about 20 hands in the group shot up. 20 hands of faith raised saying, yes, I want to identify with the Savior who identified with me. And, and it was a wonderful moment of celebration. And they praised God for the next several moments. They celebrated and rejoiced in what God is doing. And then they parted ways. And Jeff and this missionary friend went to other villages. And chances are that Jeff will never see those faces ever again in this life. But there is coming a day when Jeff will see them again. And there is coming a day when Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch will see each other again. And that day is coming when the parade comes to an end, right? When the parade of gospel movement reaches its conclusion, reaches its consummation, reaches its end. And in that moment, a feast is going to be thrown. And there will be represented there people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue enjoying the presence of Jesus and fellowshipping with one another forever and always. There is coming a day when Philip and the eunuch will be reunited. There is coming a way when Jeff and his missionary friend will be reunited with that group in Africa. There is coming a day when people you have met and ministered to along the way that you are not seeing or interacting with now, there is coming a day when you will sit with them again and you will feast with them in the presence of Jesus forever and always. As you experience the work of God in your life and through your life, as you resolve to say, you know, I'm not content standing on the sidelines of this thing. 
I want to get out into the street, and I want to be a part of this parade that is the kingdom of God moving throughout the city of Seattle, moving throughout the world around us. And so we're going to step out into that together because that's ultimately what the church is. The church is a a parade, and we are caravanning through this city and through this world together, and we are inviting more and more people in with us. And more, or pe- more people are being added to our numbers day by day as they're being saved and rescued from their sins and introduced to the Savior. And, and we walk together through this world, sometimes shoulder to shoulder. Sometimes there may be some distance between us, but we're moving in the same direction. And one day, that parade is going to come to an end. And one day, a feast is going to break out and we will enjoy it together forever and always. Let's pray together.